excited to have you guys here as we're continuing this series called Hustle and Flow. And uh, we've been in a study on the book of James over the last seven weeks. This is actually, I, I figured this out this morning, this is the longest series we've ever done in the history of our church studying uh, a, a singular book of the Bible. And we've been studying verse by verse the, this book of James that was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Um, and it's all about our active and expressive faith, hence the series title, Hustle and Flow. It's about not just the words that we speak, but the actions that we take. And do those things correlate in our lives? And so today we're going to be looking at James chapter 4. If you want to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. And we're going to be taking a look at a question that I think is a great question for all of us to answer. And it's the question that James is, is posing here in chapter 4. And that question is this, is what is at the center of your life? I think that's a, it's an important question for us to uh, think about it. It's, a, it's an important answer for us to identify in our lives. Like, what is at the center of your life? And if you were to look at the New International Version or NIV version of the Bible, uh, it actually describes at the heading of this chapter, it describes this chapter as a God-centered life. And so what James is doing here is he's kind of outline, out, outlining what a God-centered life looks like and what is the the overarching theme of a God-centered life and what gets in the way of us living a God-centered life. And, and so uh, I, I think that that's the life that we all should be living is a God-centered life. Unfortunately, there's some things that kind of push that idea out of our lives. And so James really dives in and talks about those. So we're going to read the first couple of verses of James chapter 4. Then I'm going to talk a little bit. We'll read some more. Talk a little bit. We'll read. I'll yell a little bit. We'll read. And it'll be great. Okay, so uh, James chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, it says, What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. So he goes, hey, here's, here's the symptoms. Here's what's happening in your life. All these things are happening. Now, now here's the problem. Some of us are thinking, well, that was the problem. No, no, no. He says there's, there's something that's actually a bigger problem. He says, yet... You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. So the first five passages of scripture here are painting a picture of what our lives look like and how we've gotten there because of the focus of our lives. And he's saying the focus of our life has become on ourselves. It's been a very pleasure-driven life, and it's become a very me-centered life. And, and so basically what he's saying, if you're taking notes, a pleasure-centered life is marked by this attitude that we get of selfishness. He's saying, listen, at, at the heart of a me-centered life, at the heart of a pleasure-centered life is this attitude of selfishness. And the goal of the enemy for all of our lives is to get us distracted from the call of God and the plan of God for our lives. And instead of focusing our life on God, he wants us to focus our life on other things. And so the ultimate focus of what he can do is he says, hey, stop looking at God and start looking at yourself. Start looking at what you're doing, what makes you happy, what makes you feel good about life, and put your focus on that. And when we get focused on that, 
what ends up happening is, is we end up living with this selfish attitude. And, self, and when we have a selfish attitude at our core, it's going to cause some unhealthy things to start to take place in our life. And so if you're taking notes, here's a couple of things that selfishness will cause in our life. Selfishness will cause us to forget about God. Selfishness will naturally cause us to forget about God because somewhere in the process of life, instead of God being at the center of our life and our lives kind of revolving around God, what we do is we say, hey, God, get out of the way, and I want the world to revolve around me. I want all eyes on me, as Tupac would say. I want everything to be about me, and I want life to revolve around me and how I feel and what's happening and what's going on, and, 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 and so that becomes the primary focus. And going back to James chapter verse 2 he says you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it now he's talking to somebody that is a believer in Jesus and so he's he's talking to Christ followers here in the church and he says listen here's what happens to us we start off with a God-centered life but before long we start pursuing things we start pursuing things in our life and as the pursuit of things becomes greater and greater and greater we stop even talking to God about the things that we're pursuing. And so what will happen is, is we'll have a job opportunity that's opening up at work. And instead of going, God, what do you think I should do? Should I take this step into this job? We totally ignore God and just do whatever we want. Or maybe we're engaged in a relationship and we're like, man, maybe I should take this relationship to the next level. We don't ask God about that. We just do whatever we feel like. And the longer we get into that mentality, the more we're going to edge God out of our lives. And so what happens is we don't even pray about those things anymore. In fact, we've stopped praying. And one of the reasons we've stopped praying is because we know that the things that we're praying for aren't God's will for our life. Like, we know that they're just things that we want in our lives. Now, there's a verse in Psalms 37.4 that I think has a lot of correlation with this verse. Uh, and it, it says this. It says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And so we're talking about selfishness. And, you, and, and so people will quote the scripture. Well, God just wants to give me whatever I desire. And, and yes, God does want to give you what you desire. When your desires are correct. He doesn't just want to give you what you want. Because that, that would mess some things up. In fact, there's another verse that correlates with this in the New Testament. It says uh, that God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Like God... God is a God who wants to supply you with things. He wants to take care of you. In fact, we would call that God wants to bless your life. But the way, there's, there's always something that, that precedes the blessing of God. And so a lot of us, we want God's blessing in our lives, but we don't want to do the thing that, that makes the blessing happen, which is to delight ourselves in the Lord. When we make God the focus of our life, when God becomes the delight of our life, it changes everything. The problem is, is we live in a society where we, we've kind of changed the gospel message, where we, we've said to ourselves, well, uh, you know, I, I've said a prayer to accept Jesus as my Lord, and so therefore I should pray, and whatever I pray for, should, God should just give it to me. Or, or, like, we've been told this prosperity gospel, if I sow a seed, if I give some money, then God is required to give me not only what I gave, but give me back more and in abundance. And the reality is, is that is great in theory, but terrible in application when it comes to confirming that in God's word. Because the essence of the gospel isn't that I get, get, get. The essence of the gospel is, is that we die to ourselves so that we can have a relationship with God. 
The, the essence of the gospel is for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever shall believe in him shall have eternal life. But then the flip side of that is, is that we're to die to ourselves. That's the whole idea of baptism that we did a couple weeks ago is that our old nature dies so a new man arises. So there's going to be something new to our lives. And, and so if we're going to delight ourselves in the Lord, it means that our desires are going to become God's desires. All of a sudden, what we want in life, if we're delighting ourselves in God, should be the very heart of what God wants. And most of the time, what God wants and what I want are completely different. And so as I start to delight myself in God, all of a sudden, my desires change. And because I'm delighting myself in God, God starts to give me the desires of my heart, which are his desires. And so when we see that scripture, it's saying, listen, when we delight ourselves, when we do the first part, when we don't circumvent the delighting, all of a sudden our desires become God's desires and God's desires become our desires and it becomes really easy for him to grant that in our life. That's a lot. So, so when we de delight ourselves in what God wants, we start to want what he wants and he wants us to have what we want. That makes sense. And that can be a little bit challenging. In verse 3, it says, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. He says, some of us, we're not getting what we want because we're cutting God out of our lives. And, and all we want are things that bring us personal pleasure. And God isn't going to answer that prayer because it's done with the wrong motivation. You're praying with the wrong reasoning in life. And, and, and for me, I find it really, really easy for me to change when it's very, very obvious of what I'm praying is not what God wants. Like, I'll say, hey, I, I want this right here. And God will go, no, 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 you don't want that. You want this right here. And I'll go, oh, I see. I don't want that. I want this. I get that. I can change. I want that. Like, that's easy for me to recognize in my life. My problem comes, and I'm going to guess it's probably going to be your problem as well, is that when, when I want something for my life, uh, out of a selfish motivation, and then God wants the same thing for my life, but with a totally different motivation. It becomes very, very difficult for me to comprehend. Let me give you an example. I, I think God wants all of us to have a, a nice place to live. I think that God wants every single one of us to, to have a nice home. Uh, and so for some of you, you're praying, God, give me a nice home. But the motivation between... But, behind you having a nice home is so that you can go and you can look at all your loser family and go, ha ha, guys, I made it. Check out my house. Check out where I'm living. I'm living large. I live in here. You live out there. I'm a baller. What's up? That's your motivation. And so God's going, man, I, I want you to have a house, but that, that's not the reasoning. So I, I can't answer that prayer because that's wrong motivation. See, I, I think God wants you to have a nice house. And he probably wants you to have a nicer house than what you want, and, and the motivation behind why he wants you to have a nice house is so that those kids that you're raising, that you can raise them in a safe and godly environment where they can grow up in the ways of the Lord and in your home seeing a healthy family unit. Like, I think he wants you to have that. I think he wants you to have a nice home probably because uh, he wants you to open up your home to have a connect group there so you can invite people in to grow in a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ and, and, and disciple other people in their walk with God so they can follow you as you're following Jesus. I think he wants you to have a nice home for that. I think he wants you to have a nice home so your kids uh, can invite their friends over to your house. You know, your kids need some place to play today. We're not cool with them just running around in the streets. And so there needs to be some house where they can gather at and, and they can go to any house, but it should be your house. And so God's going to give you a nice house 
so that all those kids can come to your house and they can see what a healthy family unit looks like. They're coming from broken homes. They're coming from jacked up family situations. And they're going to walk into the Smith family home or they're going to walk into the, the, the Johnson home and they're going to see a healthy relationship between a husband and wife. And they're going to see kids that actually obey their parents on the first time they say it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And they're going to they're gonna go, man, this is what I want in life. And, and so later on in life, when they're looking for relationships, they're not going to look at their mom and dad who, who have been through 37 relationships. They're going to go, you know what? I want a relationship like the Smiths had, that house that I was always playing at, that I saw health and growth in. And I saw people that were devoted to Christ. That's the reason God wants you to have a nice house. Totally different motivation. Totally different motivation. And I think God wants to bless us, but for different motivations than we currently have. And some of us, we've been praying out of the wrong motivation and out of the wrong reasons because we want pleasure. And what God wants us to do is he wants us to learn to die so that we can want what he wants for our lives. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, it says, they will love pleasure rather than God. They'll appear to have a godly life, but they will not let its power change them. And this scripture right here, this is, this is talking about us because we like to make life about ourselves. We love to pursue pleasure. And in the midst of that pursuit, we forget about God. We forget that he is our provider. We forget that he is our source. We forget that he is our father. We forget that he wants to have a say in the things we desire in this life. And what will happen over time as we continually forget about God, what will happen is, is, is our motivation, our selfish motivation will become fascinated by the things of this world. What will happen is selfishness always causes us to be fascinated by the world. And this is speaking to us as Christ followers. What he's saying is he's saying we'll be following God, but as we start to look around, we'll start to go, you know what, there's some things that I'm not experiencing in my life that people outside of the will of God are experiencing and, 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 and I, I feel like I'm missing out. And so, like, I, I want to follow God. So on, on one foot, I'm going to keep my foot in God's place. And then this foot, I want to go experience the world. And so, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of straddle the fence between the two. And I'm, I'm going to try to live there. And I'm going to try to go back and forth. And, and, but I'm fascinated by this. So I'm abandoning this over here. And James has got something to say about this. In fact, in verse 4, this is what he says. He says, you adulterers. Kind of a harsh statement for James just to throw out there. He just kind of, hey, what's up? He says, listen, when you put one foot in the world and you're pursuing those things and you have one foot with God, what you're doing is you're committing spiritual adultery. Because you're saying like, man, I've made God my ultimate. I've made him my all in all. But all of a sudden, you're cheating on that relationship with other things. And so what you're doing is you're, you're, you're having an affair on God. He's saying, man, we got to, live a little bit differently and, and he's saying like man this isn't a light subject in fact it's pretty intense he says don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of god now some of you are like teacher that doesn't make any sense because you tell us all the time to go and to build relationships with people and and out of those relationships hopefully we'll be able to invite them to church invite them into a relationship with god but but it it, it says man if i'm a friend of the world then then i'm an enemy of god and and you're right, I tell you to do that all the time because being friends with people is not being a friend of the world. In fact, Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He encourages us to go build relationships. What he doesn't encourage us to do is to go pursue things of this world. 
He says, go reach people because people are important. But he says, don't become, don't go and, and, and become a friend with the world. You can be friends with people. Don't become a friend of the world. And in the original gr Greek language, that word uh, friend of the world is literally talking about a fascination in pursuit of earthly things. He's saying, listen, a friend of the world is when you become fascinated with things of the, or this world and you start to pursue those things. And so when pleasure becomes the ultimate in our lives and it becomes the center of our world, all of a sudden our focus and our attention becomes on those things and we start worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And we miss out on the very heart of God. And James is trying to remind us of this. And he says, hey, listen, listen, I said, man, listen, I said, don't be an enemy of God. Let me just tell you again. He says, let me say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now, I want you to see this clearly because God doesn't make you an enemy. God loves you. He is for you 100% of the time. He is always there for you. It says you make yourself an enemy of God. So what it's basically saying is it says, we take the Heisman stiff arm to God. We say, God, we're in opposition of one another. I'm going to oppose you. I don't want you at the center of my life. I'm going to actually oppose you. And we end up putting things in the center of our life rather than God as the center of our life. And God goes, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how I designed you to operate. That's not how I designed you to work. In fact, one of the, the first things I did is I gave you some, some rules for healthy relationships. It's called the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, he says, here's the first commandment of the ten. And uh, the first is always the most important out of everything else. The first place you see something, the first thing it said, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. He says, listen. What I want and what I desire is I want to be number one in your life. There is no place for second place for me in your life. It's either first place or no place at all. And the word God there in the Greek literally means rulers. And what God is saying is, listen, there should be nobody ruling your life but me. I'm the only one that should be in your life. And so there should be nothing else that's dominating your time, your talent, your affection, your admiration. I should be your ultimate. And so how do we know what is ruling our lives? There's, there's two easy tests that we can take to figure out what's ruling our lives. The first test is called the calendar. It's called your schedule. Is God in your schedule? Because your schedule is going to tell you a lot about your life. Do you worship the beach? Do you worship coffee shops? Do you worship your boat? Do you worship going to the club? Do you worship hooking up with that guy or that girl? What do you worship? Because what you schedule your life around reveals what you worship, what you value in life. What you value is what you worship. And so if you're not making any time for personal time with Jesus, you probably don't value it very much. If you don't make time for church to set yourself up on a weekly basis, you probably don't value God a whole lot in your life, and, and, and we're not leading ourselves in that direction, and so a really easy test is your schedule. Another easy test is your checkbook. If somebody were to do an analysis of your life looking for evidence that you were a follower of Jesus, would your finances have any reflection that God is evident in your life? And some of you are like, well, what, is, what do finances and, and, and God have any 
correlation between evidence of my relationship with them. Well, Jesus said, where your treasure is, where your money is, there your heart will be also. So if y'all want to know where God is, if God's at the center of your life, there should be some sort of reflection when it comes to your finances of God in your life. And so if somebody were to peruse your checkbook, would they think that you, you worship Jesus or you worship Starbucks? We may say that we value God, but if it isn't reflected in our time, in our talent, in our finances, in our family, do we really? Listen, and it's really easy to fall into this trap of selfishness because the mantra of our society I think Sheryl Crow said it best. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. So just go and do it. If it makes you happy. I can't sing it very well, but that's the mantra of society, isn't it? It's selfish. Does it make you feel good? Yeah, go do it. Make that the center of your life. Here's the principle that we need to understand. He's either Lord of all or not at all. That's what God says. I'm either in first place or I'm in no place. So we get in this condition where we forget about God and we become enamored with the things of the world and our, our life is built around the money we can make and the cars we can drive and the stores we can shop at and the country clubs we can join and And when all those things are going on and selfishness has become the center of our life, what always ends up happening is that selfishness begins to fight with people. We begin to become combative with other people. James tells us in verse 1, he says, what is causing quarrels and fights among you? Some of you all know some people that every time you encounter them, there's like a fight going to happen. Not a physical fight, but there's going to be some sort of argument. There's going to be some sort of tension. It says, don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. And I think the reason we have so much tension, we have so much strife in relationships, is not because of other people. It's because we have this internal war going on inside of us that is coming out externally in relationships. See, something has gone sideways in our life, and it's causing us to get bent out of shape when it comes to everything in life. Because we've all met people that no matter what you do, it seems like they're always mad and they're always angry. Like, it's like no matter what you do, there's always going to be an argument. There's always going to be tension there. Like, like, you roll to work, you know that you have that coworker that's exactly like that, and you think, man, I'm going to win them over today. And so you stop at Starbucks and, and pay $5 for a 50-cent cup of coffee, and you doctor it up just like they like, and you bring it in, and you're like, you like present it to them, hoping that, man, this is going to set the day off right, and they take a sip, and, and they get mad at you because it's not the right amount of sugar in their coffee. They're like, what the heck? Why would you bring me coffee without sugar? 
And so to, to make up for the anger that you just started, you're like, I'm going to appease them with the food of the gods. And so you go to Chick-fil-A for lunch that week, and you buy them some Chick-fil-A thinking, man, this is what's going to change the game. And, and you present that to them in a humble format, hoping that they're not going to kill you. And you're like, here is the Chick-fil-A. And, and they grab it, and they start opening it up, and you got them Chick-fil-A sauce instead of ranch for their fries, and now you just set them off. Now they're ready to punch you out, and you're like, whoa, 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 let me make it up to you. And you're like, why don't you follow me to Chick-fil-A, and I'll make sure to get you the right thing. And so you're driving along the way, and you're at a stoplight, and you're texting them, letting them know that it, like, you can't control the lights, and so you're apologizing. But while you're texting, the light turns green, and, and they're on the horn behind you. Ur, 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 go before I kill you. You know, they're just like, doesn't matter what you can do. Like, there's just something jacked up inside of them. Why? Because you've got an internal issue. Because if you start to think about it, everything is about them. No matter what you do in life, everything revolves around you didn't meet my expectation, my needs, and my desires. And so my entire world is focused on my selfishness. And therefore, because I'm selfish, I'm combative with you. And they've forgotten God. And when you've forgotten God, what ends up happening is you end up living with this scarcity mentality. And some of you guys are experiencing this in your life. You, you're, you're like, there's tension in all of my relationships. I don't know why. Why are people, you think to yourself, why are people so messed up? And if people aren't messed up, it's because you're messed up. And so what happens is, is somebody goes and gets a promotion and you get angry about their promotion. Come on, let's be honest. When, when people, when other people are successful in life, if, if you got some twinge of resentment and anger in that moment, like, man, they shouldn't have gotten that. I should have gotten that. You're probably living with a little bit of a scarcity mentality because you think in your heart that they got the only promotion that's ever going to be available in this life. And therefore, like I lost out. That's what a scarcity mentality has. And so therefore you think, well, I've got to wage war against them because they got what I wanted and they're, they're, <laughs> there's never going to be another job opportunity out there. No, never. But we live in this scarcity mentality. And so we say to ourselves, man, if I can't have it and God won't give it to me and God gave it to them, well, I'm going to wage war and I'm going to kill and I'm going to scheme and I'm going to do whatever I can to get that from them. Now, I have to take their opportunity. I have to take their promotion. I have to take their new car in. And God's idea is that you and I, we would live in community, in harmony, that we would celebrate the success of other people, that that's the situation that we're supposed to be in. And... But somehow, even us as Christ followers, when somebody is successful, we think for some reason that impacts us negatively. When the reality is, is when somebody else is successful, we're all successful. When somebody else gets promoted and it blessed, man, it should bless all of us. But we're living in this condition where we've forgotten God. Because we've forgotten God, we've, we've centered our life all around ourselves. And because it's centered all on us, we think that there's, it can only be for us or there's nothing at all. And therefore, that we're combative in every single relationship. We have all this tension because of this attitude of selfishness. And James is saying, this isn't the life that you and I have been called to. We've been called to a totally different way of living. 
He says, listen, a God-centered life is, is marked by an attitude that is distinctly different than selfishness. A God-centered life is marked by this attitude of humility. He says, man, we've got to live with humility in life. You and I need to stay free from these selfish desires and attitudes that are out there. And the way that we do that is through humility. And here's what we need to know about God. God says this in James chapter 4, verse 6. And God gives grace generously. God gives grace generously. And that's an interesting thought because even as Christ followers, we become selfish and we can become enamored by the things of this world and we can get into all kinds of fights with people. And James says that we've got to remember that even when we do all that, it isn't over. Like, there's still something that's there that if, if we'll find some humility, that there is this grace that can cover over a multitude of sins. It doesn't matter how bad we've messed up or how bad we screwed up their situation. Man, God's grace can take care of that. He says, but here's the secret to it. The scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if you're taking notes, here's what you need to know. Number one, humility releases grace. Humility releases grace. And so if you've gotten this condition of selfishness, you, you've gotten to this place where you begin to worship things instead of God, what he's saying is, is you and I, we've got to make this course correction. We've got to change this attitude and we've got to get this posture of humility. And there's a great study in the Old Testament of the first two kings of Israel. Uh, the, they, they each had very distinct and different lives. The first king was named Saul. And uh, Saul made one, one mistake. And uh, he ended up having the kingdom of Israel ripped from his hands. Then on the flip side, you have the second king of Israel. His name is David. And he made a multitude of mistakes. And at the end of his life, uh, he was considered a man after God's own heart. And so if you ever have done a case study on these two, you're like, what, man, what is the difference? Like I asked myself, like, what is the difference between these two guys? Why, why did one guy mess up one time and he had everything ripped from him? And why did another guy mess up a ton of times and yet he's considered a man after God's own heart? And if you look at their study of their life, you, you find one distinct difference. Because with Saul, he was uh, asked by God to go and destroy an entire people. A nation, destroy everything in it, destroy all their stuff, destroy all their animals, destroy every single person. And so he goes, takes his army into battle, overtakes his nation, kills all the stuff except for one king, some of the really, really good sheep in livestock, and keeps some plunder for himself. And so what happens is the prophet of God comes to him and says, hey, Saul, did, did you do what God said? And Saul goes, yep, man, I killed everything. I killed what God told me to kill. And the prophet goes, man, I, I hear sheep in the background. What, what are those sheep for? And he goes, well, I, I decided to, to keep some sheep and, and a king to, to sacrifice to God. And the prophet's like, well, then you didn't do what God said. And he said, yeah, I did. I did exactly what God said. You don't need to understand. You don't need to tell me what God said. I know what God said. I did what God said. And he gets this attitude of arrogance. And in fact, he, he told the prophet, he said, listen, I kept those sheep and I kept those things because I'm going to sacrifice them to God because my plan is actually better than God's plan. I'm going to do it my way. Little Frank, Frank Sinatra, do it my way. It's what Saul thought. And the prophet said to him, man, you've taken that attitude for today. The kingdom is ripped from your hands. One mistake. On the flip side, there's David who came right after him. David made a lot of mistakes. Probably his most prominent and well-known mistake is, is that 
The Bible says at a time when kings went to war, David stayed home. And while he was at home, all the men of the community were gone. And at noontime in Jewish culture was the bathing time. And so the reason it was the bathing time is because they put the, the baths on their roofs because nobody wants to take a cold bath. And so the, the, the best time to have a warm bath is noontime because the sun has been beaten down on that water all day. And so it's warmed up. And so what would happen at noontime is, is all the, the people would go up and take baths. Well, all the men are gone, so it's all women. And it says around noontime, David was up on his roof during that hour. And so you can imagine what David's doing. He's scoping out all the naked chicks. I mean, let's just be real. That's what he's doing. He's up there. He's like, what's up, ladies? You know, and, and so his house is on the top of the hill because he's the king. So he's looking down, and he's kind of looking for the, the lady he'd like to hook up with. And he finally spots when he's like, that's hot stuff right there. I want some of that. And he sends his God to go get her. He brings her back. She's married to somebody else. He sleeps with her and sends her home. He's also married to somebody else, too. So he commits adultery with this woman. Not only that, but a, a couple, uh, a month or two later, she finds out that she's pregnant. She comes to him and says, hey, man, I'm pregnant. I'm, we're, we're in deep trouble. This secret's going to be discovered. And so he calls her husband back from war and says, hey, man, go home and sleep with your wife. But this husband, who is one of his generals, is so honorable. He's like, man, I'm not going to sleep with my wife when my men are out battling. I'm going to sleep here at the king's door. And so this upsets David because this messes up his plan. So he has her husband murdered. Does that sound like a man after God's own heart? So he abdicates his, his responsibility by not going to war. He commits adultery. Uh, technically, he's looking at pornography. Uh, he's, <laughs> he sleeps with some other chick and commits adultery. Then he kills her husband. That does not sound like a godly man to me. But here's the difference between Saul and David. When the prophet comes to David and says, what's up? David rips his clothes and falls on his face and begins wailing and mourning, God, I've screwed up, I've messed up, covers himself in ashes and dresses in sackcloth and mourns and repents before God. The only difference between the two kings was an attitude of humility. And what we need to understand is that humility releases God's grace in our lives. And if we get to this place where we say, you know what, it's not my fault. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do my own way. You and I have got to understand that God is going to oppose the proud, which means he's going to reject you. But if we'll take this attitude of humility and say, man, God, I've screwed up. I've messed up, man. I'm asking you for grace. It doesn't matter how many times you fail. God will extend his grace over and over and over again to those who will humble themselves before him. Verse 7 says, so place yourself under God's authority. Resist the devil, and he will run away from you. So now we've got to get God's protection. We, we've already realized that God's grace comes by humbling ourselves. And so, uh, so now we need to realize that our own selfishness is going to lead to sin. But there's also an enemy that's out there that's continually trying to get us to stumble and fall into sin over and over again. And, and so we need to have a little bit of spiritual authority to be able to resist the, the attacks uh, that are continuously being thrown at us to draw us back into our selfishness. We need to realize that, that we've got to learn 
about authority. And the only way we can have authority in life is by submitting to authority. And, and some of us as Christ followers, we've never submitted to any authority. So we're wondering why we keep getting pummeled by the enemy all the time. And it's because we've never learned the art of being under authority so that we can have some authority. So therefore, the enemy has to flee from us. And so what you and I need to realize is that this attitude of humility, when we get this attitude of humility, humility resists the devil. And the reason humility resists the devil is because when we get in a humble state, what we end up doing is we end up saying, God, I need you to be first in my life. I need your authority in my life. And see, when we get under God's authority, we start to have authority. And some of us have never figured that out. See, I figured this out in high school from a totally different methodology. See, in high school, my senior year, I had this uh, study hall class. And, and so my football coach actually ran the study hall class. He's the athletic director, and so he would send me out on errands. And so during other people's classes, I'd just be walking around the school hallways, looking at my friends' classes, making faces, and then kind of running off. And, and, and what would happen periodically is a teacher would see me out in the hall or uh, a guidance counselor or a security officer, and they'd be like, hey, Mac, Mac, get over here. What are you doing outside of class? And they start yelling at me. And I'd walk over to them, and they'd be like, "You need to, what class are you supposed to be? You know, they're getting ready to get me in trouble. They're getting ready to oppress me. But what they didn't know is what I had in my pocket. And what I would do is I'd pull out this slip of paper in my pocket that was called a hall pass, and I would pop it out in front of them, and I'd be like, what's up, sucker? Because I had a hall pass with Coach Meckley's name on it, which meant I could do whatever I needed to do because I had his authority to be out there. And because I had his authority, I'd be like, see ya, and just walk off and didn't even care because I was a man under authority. And what we've got to realize is that Jesus, he said at the end of his life, all authority has been given into me on heaven and in earth. And now he said, go. He abdicated and he gave us his authority to go into this world. And so when we submit ourselves to God, all of a sudden we get this humble place. We're under his authority. Now we have his authority so that when we walk out into life, the enemy comes and tries to throw stuff our way and because we're submitted to God it, we resist him because of that and he's got to flee from our finances he's got to flee from our relationship he's got to flee from our career he's got to flee from our life because we're under his authority and some of us we've got to realize that the only way we're going to have authority is by getting under his authority and we're not doing it maliciously we're not manipulating it it's going to be a true humility that comes there and so he's saying man we need god's grace and we need god's power in verse 8 he says come close to god and god will come close to you wash your hands you sinners purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between god and the world and he's what he's doing is he's helping us to see that some of us man we're, we're straddling that line we've got one foot in we've got one foot out and he's saying listen it's time for you to to put up or shut up it's time for you to make a decision he says, the decision I hope you make is the decision to follow Jesus. To humble yourselves in that nature. To put yourself in that context. And what that means for you is, is to repent of that attitude of selfishness. He says, here's what that looks like. He says, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. And I hope you see what he's saying here because sometimes you can look at that and go, man, that doesn't, that isn't very life-giving. That isn't very helpful. Let me be sad, mournful. Like, what's that all about? Is 
Is God saying we should feel condemnation and we should be depressed about what's happened? No, no, no. That's what the enemy tries to do to us. He tries to get us to this place where he says God's not there and there is no hope for you and you've jacked it up and you've messed it up too bad. What he's trying to get us to see is is that when we screwed up, we're in a relationship with God. times we approach the sin in our life very flippantly like oh god i'm sorry we just walk off like it's no big deal it's like when you were a kid and you're you do something wrong with your friend or whatever and your parents would go tell your friend you're sorry sorry and like you weren't sorry the price that was paid for your forgiveness it, it wasn't some cheap and meaningless gift it'd be like me going out and finding Shayla the most incredible gift that she's been longing for waiting for and, and I, I save up and I, I put all this time and energy and effort into it and then I hand it to her and she's like oh thanks and just flippantly ignores it you'd be devastated and God goes man I've given you this incredible gift this gift this week our focus wouldn't be on pleasure and that our focus wouldn't be on selfishness but our focus would be to always put God first first in our schedules first in our families first in our finances first in our relationships as we put him first when we're tempted man we would resist the enemy James says that's what a God-centered life looks like it's a life that humbles 